Hello, everyone. Uh, today we're going to be looking at an aspect in the book of James, which is about our creation by God as new creatures who he has made into actually his greatest creation, which is the born-again believer in this age, the new creation. Uh, there's a, it, it's told in many different ways, but there's a, a great analogy about a sculptor's uh, sculpting room, <laughs> is that what it's called, that, uh, where he has loads of these blocks of stone that he's going to sculpt from, but they're awful. You know, they're not, they're not like this beautiful marble or they're not actually for, cut from a good quarry, that they're ugly, misshapen, and, uh, and, and yet this sculptor is going to make something great out of them. Anybody who comes into the shop says, you know, you're starting off with the wrong material. It's not going to work. You could never make anything beautiful out of that. And, of course, the sculptor is going to take from that ugliness and make his great masterpiece. And that is a terrific uh, analogy of of us in the church age and what God has made us to be. You know, we are <coughs> uh, ugly to the core, really. And God makes us into something amazing, something great. Uh, along with that, there's a lot of fairy tales uh, in which there's actually one I'm, I'm currently reading a fairy tale right now. I'm loving the heck out of it. It's a great break from like history, boring history and stuff. But anyway, that, uh, <clears throat> there's a, plenty of fairy tales where the maker of something like Pinocchio, right? He wants the, the puppet to come alive. Uh, there's another great, I think it won an Oscar, uh, 1980s movie, Mannequin. That's, that's a great one. It's actually a terrible, terrible movie, but a fun movie where this uh, <laughs> degenerate falls in love with a mannequin and the mannequin comes to life. I think that's Daryl Hannah, isn't it? It was like her, her break. But anyway, um, it, it, in the same way that you know, the stone, they would love, the, the maker, the sculptor would love the stone to come to life. I think there's a Greek myth in there somewhere that uh, God is actually going to take these ugly stones, create them into something magnificent. It's true masterpiece. And then, and then on top of that, make them come alive. And here's the thing that James is getting at. We are that in the church. We're God's greatest masterpiece the church-age believer, who is the one that has been given the fulfill not the complete fulfillment, but the beginning of the fulfillment of the new covenant. And so we have been, we have been made by God, as Colossians 3 says, in the image of Christ. So a new creation in the image of Christ. How could we be better? And that's the point that James now brings out which is not really the theology around all of that, but what James is getting at is, if we are that, how should we live? If we're God's masterpiece, how should we live? If this great sculptor made this great masterpiece that the whole world, you know, I, I mean like in the analogy, right? If that the whole world marveled at, and then the thing came alive, and, and people would be blown away. This beautiful thing became alive, and then it behaved like a jerk, <laughs> or you know, it behaved like like ungodly and sinful, and and <clears throat> maybe took over the world and was a tyrant and became a devil. Well, that that's not an ending. It's not the ending of the story that anybody's looking for, and nor should we be. And that actually has a lot to do with the book of James. So we're going to start in James 1, and we're not going to do the book verse by verse, but uh, we are going to spend quite a bit of time, well, at least a couple of classes in James 1 and 2. So let's turn there and let's open up in prayer. <coughs> Father, we come before you to learn your word again. Uh, we come before you to be enlightened by the message that you have inspired in your servant James and to take from this the truth that he has provided so that we can uh, be improved upon and, and be able to see what it is that you have made us to be. To be able to uh, comprehend that and, and to 
provide Father uh, a life, or to live a life, I should say, that is commensurate with that which you have made us to be. Um, If we are your masterpiece, and we are, we must take that to heart. And if we understand and know that, Father, we we know that we'll be motivated not to ruin the masterpiece, not to use it in an un, uh, unbeautiful or an ugly way, an ungodly way, because you have made us godly and righteous. And we thank you for that. We have had nothing to do with that. It is all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Father, we ask that through your Spirit that we would be enlightened on that very thing. And we ask in Christ's name, Amen. All right, so <clears throat> first we start with some nuts and bolts. And the first nut and bolt <laughs> is the book of James. And the book of James uh, has the uh, author is James. We should know that. Uh, but which James? There's four of them that are candidates for this in the Scripture. Uh, and it would certainly not be what the, the one who's called James the Less. He, he would not have uh, written this, not because his nickname was the Less, but it, he doesn't really fit this. Um, the, James, the brother of John, was uh, uh, martyred quite early, and uh, that's the other son of Zebedee. That it, it wouldn't be him either. So anyway, there's there's a lot of scholarly work done on that. There's another James uh, in the in there too, but. It's, this is definitely James, the half-brother of our Lord. Uh, the date is somewhere between 34, 35 and 45 A.D. Actually, some think 34 A.D. And it's likely, because if it's, if it's early in this range, then it's, um, it, it helps us to understand a lot about the book that is otherwise... Uh, kind of confusing. I don't mean the the truth that's in it. It's just some of the things that he says, like the opening, this is to the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, why would he be writing only to Jews and not Gentiles when there's no Jew or Gentile in the church? And that becomes a question. Uh, Why would he not include any real theology in this book or any Christology or, you know, the the doctrines of Christ? They're not here. Uh, What it is about is how the uh, believer should handle trial and life as the new creatures that they are. That's what the book is about. So why doesn't it um, have those things? If, we're, if we take the early dates, then we, it actually explains that. Uh, but anyway, before we move on to a little more on that, what's, it's really neat here to see how uh, in this slide... Uh, On that is actually the oldest copy of the book of James that we have, uh, which is papyrus number 23, and is written in the 3rd century. That is is dated uh, by uh, scientific means, and it's somewhere in the 200s, 200-something A.D. So that's our earliest copy. It's not actually the whole thing. This portion right here is actually James 1, 15 through 18, and uh, what's, it's neat, this, because I've been learning Greek for a couple of years, and I can pick out words, but, of course, I match it with my computer program. I can pick them all out. But it's, um, you know, they're all capitals. There's no spaces. There's no punctuation. And actually, in a couple of these words, the word comes halfway, about halfway done to the end. You know how we, we put a hyphen. They don't. They didn't. And they just begin the word again or start it, the other half of the word, on the next line. There's a couple of them on this paper that are just like that. Um, And you can actually pick out one that we know pretty well. uh, It's too small for me to see here, but uh, it's right in this area somewhere. (laughs) It's too small on my laptop. At home I can see it clearly, but... You can almost see a TIA like right here. Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of uh, above that. At harmatia, you can see that's the word for sin. It's right there. There's your sin. That's not bad. Actually, I got around it pretty good. Um, and I was going to make a joke out of that. Like, you all know that word. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, so anyway. Um, <clears throat> so. This is actually probably one of the most important things to know about this epistle. 
because some of the things that he writes are going to make more sense. If it's written, say, 34 or 35 A.D., that would mean that it was written before the Apostle Paul became the Apostle Paul. It's written before um, uh, Paul's converted. It's written, we know for sure it's the first book in the Scripture. Uh, I'm sorry, in the New Testament. It's the first book in the New Testament. And that means that it has a, it, it has a prevalence that it's the first written book. You know, it's not the first book in your New Testament. It's the first written book of the New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> now, we can't be sure about the date of 35. We can't be sure about the date of 45. It's in there somewhere. But as we'll see, it's um, it, it, the very early date fits the book of Acts pretty well. Whether we have the early date or the later date, it doesn't change the theme of the book. We should know that as, that also. It just clarifies a few of the small things that are bothersome to people. And it's funny how when a little thing bothers someone about a book, they're actually ready to throw it out of the Bible. A lot of people are. And one of the people who wanted to throw it out of the Bible is our man Martin Luther. <coughs> Luther did not include it among the chief this is him, his quote. He did not include it among, quote, the chief proper books. So, as you see there, uh, Luther is saying, das, not proper. Funny, right? He, uh, com- uh, he compared, what, sorry, what, <laughs> what does that mean? He thought it a right straw-y epistle. Uh, straw-y, if you put it into word, gets a little red squiggly line under it. It is not a word in English. I don't know what he means by straw-y, I guess made of straw, but that's what he called it. He called it, quote-unquote, a straw-y epistle. He said it contained, uh, may have good sayings, but uh, and that it could be read with profit, and he actually wrote that directly into his German Bible that he uh, translated in 1522, and he disliked James, because he thought it contradicted Paul's teaching on faith righteousness because it did not have any gospel character and that, quote-unquote, it did not show the Christ. And when he says it doesn't show the Christ, he's right. He's right. He's absolutely right. But you see, if it's written in like 35, when did Christ die? In like 33 the church is two years old, if that's true, even if it's five years old. Um, how do they, you know, how do they develop a Christology? They're, they're still trying to wrap their minds around the fact that the Messiah was here, and then he died and resurrected and ascended into heaven uh, by witnesses. And that this whole new thing has begun, the church. And that the church includes Jews and Gentiles, and we're no longer under the law of Moses. And they got to deal with all of that. Nobody has time yet, <laughs> I don't think, to sit down and write out a theology. They haven't gotten it all straightened up. And that's an important point here because who's going to really write the theology of Christology? Who's going to really write the theology of the New Testament is going to be the Apostle Paul. And Paul's letters aren't coming for another 20 years after this. Not Luther, the other one. (laughs) I like Luther. In all all Christendom, he looks exactly the same. There's like this one painting of him. But anyway, um, this letter by James is at least 20 years, roughly, before Paul even starts to write. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't know these things, that they weren't communicated. Uh, but I think when Paul, when James is written, it's not actually uh, developed yet. And that's why you don't find it there. What James did understand is that a new creation in Christ was called holiness. He parallels Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in multiple ways. And he would have known this. The whole church would have known this. The Sermon on the Mount was the famous sermon. And all of them would have known it. It would have been communicated and communicated and communicated. Probably written down. And um, and we and what is we know what the Sermon on the Mount is that we are called to be holy as heaven is, uh, and Jesus said that this is what my disciple is to be. We are to be sacrificial and loving as he is. 
acting upon the things that we hear. That's what he, how he closes the Sermon on the Mount, is those who hear these words of mine and don't do them are like a house built upon the sand. And then when the rains and storms come, the house falls apart. Remember, he says, and great was its fall, meaning this is serious business. And James, that is one, that's really the main theme of James. Hear these words. James is going to write the phrase, the word of God implanted implanted like a like a seed in, in your mind the word of god matches the divine seed that is in every one of us and therefore the word of god is to be implanted and we're ready for it god has designed us as new creatures we have this divine seed inside of us this holiness that he's given us uh, with his righteousness and and we're able to comprehend this word the word of god james is going to say implanted in you but he's going to say don't stop there it has to be implanted, but then it has to be done. It has to be worked. And so James is going to say, faith without works is what? Dead. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, faith without works is a house built upon a sand. And they match each other. However, there's no Christology. <laughs> there's, no, there's no real developed theology here. So here's, uh, here's our man James. No, he don't get no respect. Everybody wants to throw his book out of the Bible. Not everybody, I'm sorry. But of all the books that have been challenged uh, with in the early days, Revelation was challenged quite a bit. But uh, and, and James should be there. Now, this is certainly no photo of James. This was painted by, and I don't even know who this guy is, Venziano. I know he's Italian. Uh, in the 14th century, so 1,400 years after James, he gets this picture. Uh, the author, he's the half-brother of Jesus, of course. He didn't become a believer until after the resurrection. We know that for a fact. That is told to us by the Apostle Paul really quickly in 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> this means if he's become a believer, now think of this. This dawned on me when I was going over his stats. That when he, if he became a believer after the resurrection of the Lord, how long was he a believer when he wrote this letter? If the letter was written in the early 30s, like 34, 35, let's say late 30s. If he's saved in 33, which is roughly where the Lord is resurrected, he's writing this book in 30, even if it's 37, 38, he's only been saved a few years which actually testifies to the fact of what a great teacher he was. Because after, I couldn't have written this book after three years of salvation. I couldn't even, I couldn't even get out of my own way and after that. Uh, but sources outside the Bible, like Josephus, there's some others whose names I can't pronounce, who wrote about him, and they, re, they reveal that he was incredibly respected he was the bishop of the church at Jerusalem. So he's really the first leader of the church because the Jerusalem church is the first church. Um, sources uh, tell us, uh, I think in Josephus tells us that he was his title was James the Just, and that was just due to his behavior, that people uh, titled him James the Just. He was also called Camel Knees because his knees were so... Uh, worn like a camel's uh, that because he was praying so much. And this is not just some legend. It's actually true. It's stated of him that he prayed so much on his knees that his knees looked like camel knees. He was arrested for a violation of the law and then stoned to death in 62 by the command of the high priest. And as the story goes, the priest said to James that I will set you free if you renounce your Faith. So he was arrested for violating the law. The high priest said, I will let you go if you denounce your faith in front of everybody. And James said, okay, I'll do it. Now, this is reported by a historian, but it sounds about right. Actually, it's a great story. So let's assume it's true. James says, yeah, all right, I'll renounce my faith in front of everybody. So he gets up on a high wall in Jerusalem somewhere, big crowd of people in front of him. And he's about to renounce his faith, or so the priest thinks. And James gives the gospel to everybody. 
he just gives this great gospel. The high priest says, push him off the wall. And he hits the ground, and then they stone him to death. That's one of the stories of how he died. So if the ground didn't kill him, all the stones did. And uh, what I like about this picture, you know, I notice like he's got a bit of a smirk on his face. Doesn't it look? It looks almost identical to the Mona Lisa smile. I wonder if Venziano was trying to depict, but you know, another Italian who is the greatest painter, perhaps uh, Michelangelo. Uh, he's got one eyebrow up, like he's looking into your soul, Adni. Like, do you have faith and no works? And then what's beautiful is he's holding a sword. So just in case you do have faith without works, he's going to smash you over the head. Well, he's not gonna, he does it with his letter, actually. He holds nothing back in this letter. He is just after it. He's not. He's not trying to be nice. He's just telling them what is the truth. So let's look at James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of Israel who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Uh, <clears throat> is that opening is real short. Again, we're not doing this verse by verse, but this opening part is, uh, just helps us to date the book a little bit. Notice the word dispersed. Uh, it's a Greek word. It's, de- it's derived from the Greek word diaspora. And this is a word that's used commonly now. Well, maybe not commonly, but it's used now for the dispersion of Israel throughout the world. It's called the diaspora. And the diaspora is all going to come back to the land at the return of Christ. Right. So if you hold your place here, this dispersion could very well be the first dispersion that is experienced in the book of Acts. And that's in Acts chapter 8. So hold your place. We'll come back to James 1. Go to Acts chapter 8, 1. Is this 8, 1? Sorry. It looks like it's in the right place. It must be. Does it say Saul was in hearty agreement? Yeah? Yes? Are you shaking your head, Deb? <laughs> got to help me out. I, I'm going blind as well as deaf and dumb. All right. <clears throat> Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who's him? Is Stephen, the first deacon, or one of the first deacons. Uh, He's the first martyr, though, at least we think he is. But who's this Saul? This is Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began began against the church in Jerusalem. And a lot of this was due to the fact that Stephen was such a powerful and bold speaker in the synagogues. So a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. By the way, James is called an apostle. There's a theory out there that there's two tiers of apostles, the primary 12, and then another set of men who actually have this title in the New Testament. That's another thing. But We know that James does stay behind. He does not disperse, as you can tell in the opening line of his letter. But who he's writing to, you see that word um, scattered, it's the same root word as dispersed, right? They're synonyms. When James says to the 12 tribes who are dispersed, it could be, and actually to me it's very likely, that this is the dispersion that he's writing to. And notice, this is before Paul becomes Paul. He's still a Pharisee trying to destroy the church. So, verse 2, Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So, uh, you can see, of course, why they did disperse. An incredible persecution. Now, James's books is going to open with trials, and this fits as well that the people that he's writing to, this dispersion, has encountered various trials, many. And he's going to encourage them, because what do we normally do under trial is, I say we, but some, or maybe most, 
uh, when we're under trial, we run to uh, fleshliness. We're looking to get out of it. We're looking for a release valve. We're looking for release of pressure. And <clears throat> we can easily head into our weaknesses, our sins, and certainly not hold the line and endure being holy and righteous and obeying God. Uh, and that's where James starts. He's going to start with, look, I know you're going through trials, but don't think that trials are some arbitrary thing that's an arbitrary pain, like, you know, a toothache that you should immediately go to the dentist and get it pulled or crowned or, you know, back in their day, it would just be, I don't think there were any crowns back then, but just get it pulled. You know, you got a toothache, go get it taken care of. But what James is saying here is that, look, these trials that you go through, and this applies to all of us, they have a purpose and therefore we're to stay with the toothache until God relieves it. I said, why would I do that? Because the toothache, the trial, is producing in you an endurance that is creating in you a faith that is of a quality that is mature. And that's where he begins. This masterpiece that God has made out of this ugly stone, he has made it into this beautiful masterpiece in the image of his son. And he has made it alive. And now that living masterpiece has to go through trials that come upon him or her from those who are not the masterpiece. You know, those who have not believed and are not conformed. And so how would the masterpiece behave? Cry and whine and complain. There's another that James approaches. He says to them, don't blame God. They blamed God. You know they did. That's why James says it. He writes it in the book, don't blame God. And how often have we blamed God? God, why have you done this to me? God, why have you done this to me? God, why won't you give me this? God, 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 complain, complain, complain. And we blame him. Is that how the masterpiece should behave? You know, that's, what, that's what he's getting at. So uh, <clears throat> here's the thing about this. And it is a great, great principle that is not only in James but throughout the New Testament and a lot in Paul. You and I must be convinced that we're this masterpiece. And if we are, let me convince that we are what God has made us to be. And the only way you're going to see what the masterpiece is, you, you could say masterpiece all day long. I don't, you know, I don't know what a masterpiece is. Chris and I had a wonderful privilege of, of going to Washington, D.C., as many of you know, last year. And we did the art museum in the, in the Smithsonian. And it was amazing. But, you know, the, that museum is, you don't, my drawings aren't going to hang in that museum. <laughs> like, nobody's is except the master's. And you've seen this. If you, if you like, I, lo- I really like art, but... You know, you walk into some of these rooms and there's all this art and you're like, really? What is that? That's a masterpiece? It looks like a kid drew it, but, you know, whatever. I mean, this isn't modern art either. They, that's, they, it's funny. Across the street from the real art was the modern art museum. And we went over there to kind of peek around. We were like, what in the world? It's ridiculous. Anyway. So, you know... It depends on what you like, right? But then, and they had this Leonardo da Vinci all by itself. It was on a pillar in the middle of the room. It was only about maybe the size of my desk here, about this big. I, could, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I just couldn't. And it was, it was a picture of a woman, like or just her face and some background, but her skin tone, whatever, I don't even know what it was. It was like three-dimensional. It was amazing. I, even after we left the room, I was like, I told Chris, i got to go back there. I just want to stare at it a little more. Just, I don't know, how does he do it? How, how did he do it? So, you know, what do you do with something? What is a masterpiece? Well, I guess you got to look, right? So, for us, what we are in Christ is in here. So what did we talk about on Sunday? This is the mirror that God has given us 
so that we can look into it and it reflects back to us the glory that we are. And that glory is Christ. So to know Him is to know you, actually, it turns out. And the only way you're going to know that is in here. And you've got to understand this. You've got to take the Word of God seriously. You've got to go over it again and again. That's what God says. You know, fill yourself with His Word. A superficial knowledge of this is not going to show you who you are. And then you're not going to be convinced that you're a masterpiece in God's hands. And then if you're not convinced, you're not going to take care of this. You're not going to take care of this. You're not going to take care of this. Because you're just going to think, whatever, it's, 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 not, it's not worth it. And so, like James is saying to them, you're going to give in to sin. You're not going to serve. You're not going to give. You're not going to forgive. You're not going to uh, lay down your life. You're not going to take care of the masterpiece. And that's what he's after. And it's a truly the only way to be convinced. It's truly the only motivation. Uh, so, go back to James 1.1. Uh, hurry up here now. Dispersed again is the same word that we find in Luke. I'm uh, sorry, written by Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts in eight one. Scattered. So James says, it's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant means that he's a willing participant in obedience. That's what bondservant means <coughs> to the twelve tribes who are dispersed. So now, the 12 tribes, why write it to just Jews? Well, if the date, and this is why I do this, if the date is 35, 36, 37, then there's nothing but in the church. There, are there some Gentiles? Of course. But the majority, by far, in the first few years of the church are all Jews. There are no appreciable amount of Gentiles yet. In fact, it's not until Acts... So we just looked at Acts 8. In Acts 9, Paul is converted. Saul of Tarsus is converted. In Acts 10, Peter is called by God to go to a, a Gentile's house to see them, Cornelius, to see them uh, believe in Christ and then receive the baptism of the Spirit and speak in tongues. And that's not until Acts chapter 11. And it's only then that Peter is like, we're including Gentiles now? Like He really didn't understand that yet. And it's not until Acts chapter 15 that there's a council that get together and say, what do we do with all these Gentiles that are starting to come in? Should they be under the law? Should they be circumcised? Should they eat? Should they follow our, you know, should they follow the Mosaic law? They were still very confused about all this. The guy who would clarify this, <coughs> excuse me, that Jew and Gentile would no longer matter and that, yes, the church was going to be filled with Gentiles and very soon many more than Jews just because there's many more Gentiles on the planet than there are Jews would be the Apostle Paul. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and it was he that would clarify this and then it would be he who would develop the theology that we all know and love. When James writes, none of this is developed. So it makes sense that he would write to the 12 tribes of Israel, and actually, in saying that, why doesn't he just say to Jews? You know, you know that seems clunky, but why wouldn't he just write to my brethren, since he's a Jew? Why wouldn't he say to the churches? And I think it's because, and it's a thing that he talks about in chapter 4, is unity. One of the things that has happened because right at the beginning, the early church has not behaved themselves. They have not followed what they've been told to follow. The law of liberty, uh, the law of Christ. They haven't been doing it. Uh, at least at least the ones that James is writing to. And when that happens, there's disunity. Um, people fight with each other. There's factions. Uh, if you're not loving one another and forgiving each other and serving one another as they all knew to do, right? Christ taught them this. James is teaching them this. And James is after unity. They have been 
not only dispersed from Jerusalem, but they've been fighting with each other. There's a great difference between rich and poor. They won't. We find that in the church at Corinth. We also find it here in the book of James, that the rich are treated one way and the poor are treated another way. The masters are treated one way. The slaves are treated another way. And James is like, look, you're all in Christ. Why are you treating people different who are in the body of Christ? Because of their socioeconomic status or because they have money. And he has to deal with that. So wouldn't it make sense that he would say to the 12 tribes, because though you're 12, for all of history, all of Israel's history was to be like that, though they were 12, they were supposed to be one. Unity. So the early date helps us to put some of that together. So the infant church experiences persecution. We should not be surprised by this. The church is, always has since the beginning. But why in the very beginning would they be persecuted? Why would this man, Saul of Tarsus, want to destroy it? Well, because they're Jews who are saying they're no longer under the law of Moses and that this guy, a quote-unquote upstart uh, revolutionary from Nazareth who isn't even educated, is the Messiah. And by the way, the Messiah died on a cross. And all of Israel's like, Messiahs don't die. right? They don't, they don't get that. So, of course, they're persecuted. But it's not just here. Not, I mean, it's not just uh, by Saul of Tarsus. Satan has many schemes. And I'm sure that Satan in the early church started to realize something of what the resurrected Christ created. When Christ resurrected and and ascended to heaven, what did he create? What happened at Pentecost? Satan didn't know any of it. How could he? Do you think he can discern the Old Testament? He can't do that. I personally don't think he tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. That's a popular, or it was a popular teaching to be. I don't think Satan understood what the cross was. How could he? He's God's enemy. I don't think he understood what the cross was. I would say, sure, he wanted the Romans to kill Jesus as soon as possible. When they whipped him half to death, he was in hearty agreement with that. But since that didn't kill him, now we're going to drag him to the cross. I'm sure Satan was like, bravo, let's kill him slow. He just wanted him dead, my personal opinion. I don't think he knew what happened. But then, when the church started, right, these weak, feeble, these ugly rocks by the name of Peter. Isn't that interesting that his name, Petros, means rock? Was he all that great? Denying the Lord? No. Always putting his foot in his mouth. (laughs) And... You know, remember Jesus says to Peter the night before he dies, Peter, Satan is, has asked, requested, that he sift you like wheat, that he beat the crap out of you and make you give up. And Jesus said, I'm going to stop him. No. He said, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> I, if I was Peter, I would have been like, well, you pray for me. You know, I wouldn't have understood the power of prayer. And it goes to show us, look, if if Jesus is praying for you, that prayer is going to come true. I have prayed for you, he said, that your strength may not fail and that you would return. I don't know if he says the word return, but that you would strengthen your brothers. In other words, you'd be a leader. And all that came true. But what was Peter? Ugly rock. Paul? Worst sinner. He said, I'm the worst sinner I ever lived. I tried to kill the church. Ugly rock. You and me? Ugly rock. What has God done with us? Carved. Molded. In the Old Testament, he's the potter who molds the clay. Not clay. What am I, Chinese? <laughs> Sorry, can't say that anymore. Uh, uh, <laughs> he's the potter who molds the clay in, in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah. And uh, in the New Testament, he's again in Romans chapter 9, the potter who molds the clay. And we've got to get to that. I need to hurry up here. So, um, so this being the first book, see, Satan's trying to destroy the church. And how is he doing it? He, well, he can't just run around killing them all. What, what, he can only do what God allows him to do. And what God has allowed him to do 
was bring trial, right? He's allowed to use guys like Saul of Tarsus. who You know, Saul at the time is definitely a son of the devil. He's the worst sinner who ever lived, he says. He is definitely a son of the devil, or was. Or, you know, and and he, he was used by Satan to persecute the church. But the church survives as God will fulfill his will and fulfill his word and his promises. And the Lord, although, is several steps ahead of Satan. Uh, duh, no kidding. So, But what does the Lord do? This is so important to us. What is the Lord's protection upon his people knowing what Satan's going to do? And it's not to stop Satan from what he's going to do. And it's not to, well, what does it do? I'm not going to come up with more examples of what he's not going to do. What he does is provide men like James. What does God provide? He provides men like James who are going to write the word of God. But James is not just any man, right? This is old camel knees. Is he still up there? There he is. But he's still looking at you. And kind of looking at you all class. Just so you're like, "Ah," you know, little Mona Lisa lips. Um, James the just, right? He's a great man of God. And it's interesting. Satan has been able to paint him as a legalist. Paint, that's a pun. He's been able to paint him as a legalist because James is in Jerusalem. There's, there were those in the book of Acts. There's some who represented James who went up to the church at Antioch in the north and said, hey, you Gentiles can't eat with Jews. They were all mixed up on the law and on grace. And because they said they were from James, people assume that that's what James thought too. But we find out that James didn't think that. That James had a right head on his shoulders. A right grace-oriented head on his shoulders. And we find that in the council in Acts chapter 15. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> James is not was not a legalist. He was a great man. So getting back to my point, what did God do to protect the church from the attacks of Satan? He provided us with letters like James. Now, we've got the Holy Spirit inside. We're new creatures. All of that as well. But without the Word to tell us who we are and what we're supposed to be, then we're lost. <clears throat> so the first being the first New Testament book written and very likely written early on, God is showing us that obeying and doing was first and foremost for believers if they were going to survive. Now that's an important point. I got coming up later on. Do I? Yeah. No, I'll go back to James here. <clears throat> the first book of the Bible. Theology hasn't been developed yet. So what's the church's first problem? That they lack theology. If that were true, James's letter would be full of theology. Was the, the church's, what was their solution was not advanced theology. Now, it's coming. Paul's going to write it. So is Peter and John. But Paul mainly. He's going to write it. And when the, when the theology comes, they're going to have to obey it. If they don't, they're going to be in a predicament like they are here. But it's not the first thing that they needed. They did not need advanced theology. What they needed was to first and foremost obey what they knew to do. For instance, Sermon on the Mount, teachings of Jesus that had already been passed on, which and a lot of Old Testament stuff as well, which deal with ethics and morals and how we're supposed to live as God's people. They were to obey and do that first and foremost. That was their problem, that they were not. And here's what James says. If you have faith in all of this, but you don't do anything, you're dead. Lose your salvation? No. He says that you're losing your life. The word is so, you know, it's soul. It's you lose your life, you lose your soul. Not that you're losing your salvation, but you're not living. You're sterile. You're 
ineffective. You're unfruitful. You've been made this masterpiece by God and you're living like an ugly rock that you used to be. He said, things ought not to be this way, my brethren. So I find it fascinating. Paul did not tell them to wait for theology. And say, well, you know, you guys are messing up. You're, you have division. You hate one another. You, you're so lustful. You seek after wealth. You don't pray. Um, you're, you're disunified. I already said that one. You're, you don't separate yourself from the world. You don't give to the poor. You don't separate yourself from the world. I just said that one twice. Uh, I'm trying. I'm running through the book in my, in my brain. I can't memorize it all. And and he says the solution is not Ephesians, meaning the book. <laughs> the solution is not Philippians. Not yet. That's coming, and that's going to help us greatly. But the first solution that you need is to do what you've been told to do by faith and. When life gets hard, and it will, that you endure by faith and that you stick to what it is you're supposed to do. I mean, what is endurance when you're under trial is continuing to do your God's will as you know it, continuing to do God's will despite the problem, despite the pain, despite the pressure, despite the issue, whatever it is. So he didn't tell them to wait for the theology. He didn't write them theology. I'm sure he didn't know any yet. He's a newly saved man, really. Rather, he told them to live in what they knew, the ethics and morals of what he calls the law of liberty. It's not a works program. I must reiterate this, and throughout the books, I'm, throughout the book, I might, I must, in other words, that you know, it's plenty of believers that believe a lot and do nothing and they want to keep it that way and um, you know you could the pastor could teach that at a church and all of those people who want to believe a lot a lot of orthodoxy get a lot of doctrine in their heads and do absolutely nothing with it will enjoy that greatly and they'll come listen to that that's what they want to do so if the, what you want to do, which is wrong, is affirmed from a pulpit by a guy who looks like a pastor, great. But this is the first problem in the church, and the first letter to the church addresses this very problem. Is James a legalist? No. Not even remotely close. I, I at, Read Acts 11 and then Acts 15. You would see that. Read the whole book of Acts, actually. Um. Is it a works program to live holy as a believer? It's God's masterpiece. He's made you holy. He said, in Paul, in theology, Paul says, I've elected you, that God elected you so that you would be holy and blameless. Is it legalistic to be holy as a believer? It is not. Is it legalism to obey your Lord's commands? No. So the book of James is for the believer who has believed much and done little. It's for the believer who has a head full of orthodoxy, who does not give, serve, rejoice. This is not just doing stuff. It's what you think. Uh, It is all. It being all that you're supposed to be as a believer. That's what the book is for. And I think that's why many... You know, and I'm, I'm surprised, you know, Luther would be uh, so unsmitten with it. Because he, before he became a believer, he was a monk who was a super legalist. He, he was like the superman of legalism. But, um, you know, I guess because he, he couldn't understand why James would say, you know, you're justified by works. And that's exactly what James writes. He's absolutely right, but he's not talking about the same justification that Paul is. It's a different type, which is, you know, James writes before Paul. So, you know, we don't, is Paul clarifying that? You know, James would have definitely known that you're justified by faith because he's writing to believers. He makes that very clear. 
So, moving on. Let's see. All right. That's not going to work. Oh, well, maybe it will. All right. Let, let's. You know, <laughs> when have I ever said, oh, I've only got 10 minutes left. I can't fit this. Right? Look, look at James 1 2. We'll just we'll set it up and uh, I will not go over. James 1 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect. Uh oh. Yeah, I told you he was a legalist. Where is he? There he is. <laughs> I love the picture. Uh, he, Perfect. No one's perfect, James. This Greek word does not mean perfect in all contexts. It means mature or complete as well as perfect. Uh, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, so verse 2 is the real beginning of the book. Verse 1 is the salutation. It's just, hey, here, here I am, James. He says, greetings. But verse 2 starts with one, consider it all joy. Right? That is the real opening of his letter. The real opening of his letter is to be joyful, but joyful in the midst of trials. Uh, <clears throat> so Zane Hodges in his, his uh, work on the Epistle of James, I just love this commentary. If you're, if you, yeah, I know you love reading Bible commentaries, right? But if you do like reading Bible commentaries and you're out there somewhere, that uh, I highly recommend this one. And it's not—it's short, it's to the point. Uh, Zane Hodges was one of the greatest Greek scholars of of the last century. Uh, he's a fantastically uh, from Dallas Theological, uh, very uh, or was uh, beautifully versed in in the Greek language, and he taught New Testament Greek theology, New Testament Greek at Dallas for umpteen years. But anyway, uh, he, he's not highly technical. It, it gets right to the point. He doesn't feed you a lot of technicality. Anyway, he says of this verse, they strike precisely the note of triumph. What he means is the words, consider it all joy. They, those words, consider it all joy, precise, uh, strike precisely the note of triumph that James wishes to sound for his Christian brothers. And they are not triumphing. And they're the masterpiece of God. Every one of them. Every believer is. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is as equal a masterpiece as any other. We are all blessed with you know, different gifts. But remember, we're all part of one body. Remember Ephesians 4, one Lord, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. Did I get them all? I should have had seven claps. I don't. I don't. I can't count. All one. We're one. We share in this. Now I want to. You know, time is up here. But so, the what we're going to see in this. <laughs> I'm really adoring working on this book, and I want to do just. A, you know, I'll probably spend like six months on it now. But I, I won't. I won't. Maybe it'll be more than a week though. <laughs> Uh, because there's so much here to know. It's just so wonderful that, first off, it's trials. Why try? He starts not with trials, though. He starts with joy. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter, and notice various. Various means multifaceted. Um, there's many kinds. It's not just Saul of Tarsus is trying to throw you in jail. There's many things that are after you, including your flesh. But the trial does what? And we all know this. Trials expose things. And what does James see here it's going to expose? The testing of your faith produces endurance. See that word testing? That's our, our old friend Dokimazo. To test the purity of something. Right? Is our, what is your faith? Is it 99.999%? Right, you, know, you can't get gold to be 100% gold, by the way. There's always some impurity in there. It might be even one atom, but it can't be, can't be, that, can't be pure. But is, it that, is that your faith? And when you go through testing, like an assayist would test the, the percentage 
of purity in a metal, um, and, and he could tell you with great accuracy how pure that metal was. But and metal is a great example for this because to test metal, you've got to melt it. You've got to put it to the fire. So, uh, like the song says, uh, where the, refi- the refiner's fire reveals our soul's desire. What do we desire? And that's the quality of your faith. So James is saying here, look, here comes the trial. You should rejoice because guess what? You're going to find out what, what is the quality of your faith. The good old camel knees, he, he didn't back down from that. That's why he was known for what he was known for. This man was devoted. He was fully a bond servant of Christ, as devoted as anybody. He wasn't given the same grand commission as James and uh, sorry, as uh, Paul and Peter and John, but I don't see him in any lesser light. He's a devoted, great man of God who, in his life, the first problems of the church have been thrown into his lap. And as a young believer. And he pens this letter with the authority that is astounding. But, you know, the apostles were running around little scaredy cats before Pentecost, but when Pentecost happened, ba-boom, the boldness came, right? Peter was just amazing. They all were. And so our confidence is built by this. So the last thing here is, to just to wrap this up for today, um, I thought it would be a great illustration, and I was talking about paintings. I saw a lot of Van Goghs in the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art. Not Metropolitan, sorry, uh, Smithsonian. And this, I, I cropped out the silly people who do this, but this is an actual event that happened some months ago where someone came in, and I, I think that's tomato soup or something, where they threw it onto this masterpiece. And I think that's a great illustration. If I'm the masterpiece of God, right, and I'm throwing into my body all kinds of unholy things, I'm throwing into my brain all kinds of unholy things, I'm pulling into my ears, my eyes, my nose, I guess, uh, you know, unholy things. I'm touching unholy things. I'm thinking unholy things. And I'm belching out unholy things. I say, well, to heck with it, man. Don't pressure me. Don't be no legalist like James. I'm forgiven of all things. I go to the Corinthian church. And you are forgiven of all things. And you can't lose your salvation. And the motivation that James and Paul and John and Peter all give to us is not a fear tactic. They don't give us that. They don't give us, you know what, you better or else. You know, there's, a, you know, there's the judgment seat of Christ that's, that's got some fear in it. Um, and I, I'm not neglecting that. But that is not, how, how often do you read about the judgment seat of Christ? It's one passage in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians. The 1 Corinthians, so you know, we're going to be judged. That's another one, one passage. But what is stated again and again and again and again? You're a masterpiece. You're the holy temple of God. That's a masterpiece. You've been created a new creature in the image of Christ. That's a masterpiece. Do you see and know who you are? And that's what motivates us to strip off the tomato soup. To, you know, to just take, I don't want this crap anymore. I don't want this anymore. You know why? Because it's hindering the masterpiece that God has made me to be. And you see that you, when you get it like that, you can't take credit for your good deeds. You would, you say, well, if I actually didn't submit all to the Lord, this would not. It, it is a masterpiece. It wouldn't look like one, not remotely. I'd look just like any unbeliever out there. But because I've been convinced of what I am, which is Paul, James is going to tell him this: you're the first fruits of God. That means God's crop. What does God's crop look like? You know, and, and that's that's the you know the stone builder, the potter, has made us into something magnificent. It's, we're His greatest creation, higher than angels even. 
And when you see that in yourself or as yourself, you give great thanks to God. It makes you greatly joyful. And it also makes you say, you know what? I do not want to take this beautiful thing that God has made and and use it in a ruinous manner. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the trials that come upon us. May we remember these lines and consider it joy. May we remember, we'll look at this tomorrow, how those trials produce in us endurance. <clears throat> and endurance is something that gives us great strength and endures our faith. And with, with stronger faith or enduring faith, we can see you more. We thank you, Father, for your tremendous grace. We ask that you impress upon our hearts the, the words that we've seen in your word today. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>